What happens when you consistently compare the Empress to Herodias and Jezebel in your sermons from your pulpit? Well, odds are that's going to cost you your job and probably your life. All that and more on today's episode, episode 12 of Church History Volume 1, History for Normal People. Thanks so much for tuning in to History for Normal People. This is Season 1. We're, we're looking at the first 600 years of the Christian Church and why a group of disciples in Palestine of a man named Jesus who was crucified and uh, by their accounts ascended and went to heaven, um, why they ended up becoming the most influential and powerful institution in the West. And so we've um, examined several things that went along with that. And we've come to the point now where they really are one of the most powerful institutions in the West. So we went from a you know persecuted minority that was misunderstood by the Roman Empire, um, often demonized by the Roman Empire, to suddenly uh, adopted by um, Constantine the Great becomes not the official religion of the empire, but by all accounts, basically the preferred religion of the empire. And and a whole new set of problems arises because now suddenly you have this, uh, this favored group. Instead of being a persecuted minority, you have this favored uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And you have nominal Christians for the first time, um, now that they're not being persecuted. And that's really going to bring us to John Chrysostom. Um, Chrysostom was born in the year 349 and died in 407 AD. And he's most remembered for his preaching. So much so that he was given the name Chrysostom, which actually just is a, a title that was given to him, meaning golden mouth in Greek, because of his, uh, his famous uh, preaching. He was born in Antioch, which is modern-day Syria. His mother actually was a pagan, unlike several of the folks that we've been talking about recently. Um, his mother was a pagan. His father was a nominal Christian and a military officer, but he died when John was fairly young. Um, his mother had him educated by one of the most respected pagan teachers in Antioch, and he thrived, especially in the area of rhetoric, which was a classic discipline of speaking and defending ideas verbally. On his deathbed, this pagan teacher, whose name was Libanius, said that John would have been his successor, would have taken over this school in Antioch if, he, if the Christians hadn't taken him from us. So it's unclear from history why exactly, but John did become a committed Christian, uh, and against his mother's wishes, against this teacher's wishes, left the pagan school to study under a Christian teacher, and he eventually became a hermit. He practiced an extreme form of asceticism in the Syrian desert, much like some of the, kind of the desert fathers in Egypt that we're more familiar with, and he, he actually spent several years um, standing, 
not sitting down, uh, barely sleeping, barely eating, and just memorizing the Bible, just committing the Bible to memory. Uh, perhaps this would have been the end of John, and he would have been lost to history, but he took his asceticism so seriously that he did serious permanent damage to his stomach and to his kidneys, and he was forced to return to Antioch to receive medical care, and he was going to be unable to return to this uh, hermit way of life without dying. So in Antioch, he quickly rose through the ranks of church leadership because of his passion, his integrity, his zeal as well as his undeniable ability to preach. He became an incredibly popular preacher. He railed against abuse of power and wealth, and he encouraged charity and help of the poor, along with uh, his biblical expositions and, and moral teachings, practical moral teachings. In a sermon of this period, he, he said, Do you wish to honor Christ? Do not ignore him when he is naked in the street. Do not pay him homage in the temple, clad in silk, only to neglect him outside where he is cold and naked. In contrast to the Alexandrian school and uh, really a lot of the more popular church fathers, Chrysostom avoided allegorical and spiritual and intellectualized sermons in exchange for direct, straightforward, and simple to understand messages with practical applications. While many of the church fathers became incredibly popular with priests and well-educated in the Middle Ages, Chrysostom was incredibly popular with the common, everyday people of his time. He was so popular that Eutropius, the most powerful man in the court of Constantinople, decided to nominate him as Bishop of Constantinople, which he won by his reputation alone. But... He, John didn't want to come to become the bishop of Constantinople. He wanted to stay in Antioch. So he was actually kidnapped by Eutropius and some leaders from Constantinople and smuggled out of Antioch so the people in Antioch wouldn't riot when they realized that they were losing him. And he was taken to the capital and installed by force as the bishop of Constantinople. Now, in spite of the fact that they really wanted him at the beginning, they didn't necessarily, I don't know if, know if they were getting what they thought they were getting, but his time in Constantinople was much more difficult than his time in Antioch. Constantinople was a very different town than Antioch. Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, it's where the emperor was. It was setting itself up as a rival to Rome and to Alexandria as the intellectual and cultural capital of Rome. And so it's a very different place than Antioch. And it's a place where John wasn't necessarily built to thrive. So he wasn't very good at playing politics, and he found himself in constant controversy with political and religious leaders, and especially Eudoxia, who was the empress. And as we mentioned in the introduction, he called her out by name on numerous occasions. Uh, at first, she was excited to have, um, to have John come to Constantinople as kind of a, a, another exhibit for people to come and see, kind of another crown in 
Constantinople over and against um, Alexandria and Rome. They have this famous preacher there. But proximity meant that John's attention was on Eudoxia and what she was doing quite a bit. And he didn't like what he saw. And so he would see her do things like, you know, take land that didn't really belong to her or dress in the the wealthiest and nicest fashions or spend money on ridiculous things or have statues of herself built in different places in Constantinople. And he would use these as occasions to launch into uh, comparisons of her as a harlot, as, uh, as Jezebel, and uh, as Herodias. Um, and obviously she did not like this. She didn't take very kindly to these kind of comparisons, and he pulled no punches. So, not being very good at building support in the church or in the political world, John was banished, uh, recalled several times to Constantinople, ultimately receiving banishment for good in the year 405. Still exerting too much influence from his town of banishment, he was sent even further away um, and died. It really, He was sent to, to the modern-day like Soviet Union or modern-day parts of Russia, and he died on the journey on 14th of September, 407. His last words were said to be, Glory be to God in all things. John's influence on the church and particular streams of its development have been profound. Many of the church's fathers were known for their skills as writers, as philosophers, as theologians. Think of some of the folks we've talked about already, like Origen, Clement, Athanasius, and especially somebody like Augustine, who we're going to talk about in the next couple of episodes. And they were intellectuals. They had been trained in the pagan schools. Uh, They... um, if they had a flaw or a fault, it's that they liked to show off a little bit how intelligent there they were. Um, they wanted, if nothing else, to if you say it in kind of a positive way, they wanted to to prove to a pagan world that they were intellectually on par with the, the pagan world. But John, even though he'd been trained in some of these same schools and proven very effective there, he he didn't really care about any of that. It was his practical preaching that made a lasting impression on people. In Constantinople, John wasted no time cleaning out the priests and deacons under him who were not genuine and who were serving for their own profit. The predecessor in Constantinople had been very good at sort of uh, playing the political game and uh, promoting people who were friends of his and who were uh, you know, doing favors for other people. And John was not having it. If you were not going to be a genuine uh, priest or deacon, he was not going to have you serving under him. He actually wrote practical manuals with strict moral demands for deacons, priests, and bishops. Um, These were going to be incredibly influential throughout the Middle Ages. Um, Other bishops who preceded John had seen hospitality as a key part of their role, and they'd spent incredible amounts of money on you know, elaborate feasts, entertaining guests from around the Roman Empire at these banquets with entertainments that were fit for emperors. Um, so they, they were kind of competing with the 
the Roman bishop as the preeminent bishop of the empire. And they saw it as more than just a, a priestly and churchly role, but as almost a political role as well. John was not playing that game. Uh, Chrysostom ate alone. He ate simple meals. He really continued this sort of asceticism from his time as a, her a hermit. And he really sought to gain favor from no one. He was aloof, introverted, and outspoken to the point of indiscretion. He offended the rich by disparaging their lack of concern for the poor, um, while caring deeply for owning multiple homes. And in one particular sermon, he told them that they were way too concerned about owning golden toilets. He offended men by repeatedly proclaiming that a woman had as much right to demand fidelity of her husband as he did of her, which was not the culture of the day, um, even for these Christian men. Now, obviously, in the early first couple hundred years of the church, this was much more important. But now, if we if kind of, once again, we start to see as Christianity becomes the accepted culture and worldview of the time, that really isn't the case anymore. Um and so we see, we see people begin to not practice what Christianity teaches. But he didn't just offend the men, he offended the women as well. He offended women because of his blazing sarcasm about dress and luxuries and uh, frivolities of the women of his day. The greatest influence that Chrysostom had on the development of the church was in reform in promoting a stream of simple, almost revivalist preaching that called for clear, practical application of the scriptures. He was also incredibly influential in bringing asceticism into the mainstream, so taking it from the desert and applying it to the roles of deacon, priest, bishop, formally, and in writing and in teaching. The rules that he wrote down for this would be influential in the church throughout the Middle Ages. Perhaps the best way for us to understand the golden tongue John is to hear from his sermons. Now, this is a famous sermon, part of a famous sermon called the Paschal Homily, which is read to this day in many liturgies in both East and West. Let us partake of the Feast of Faith. Let all receive the riches of goodness. Let no one lament their poverty. For the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn their transgressions, for pardon has dawned from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was taken by death has annihilated it. He descended into hell and took hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. and anticipated this, Isaiah exclaimed, Hades was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was purged. It was embittered, for it was despoiled. It was embittered, for it was bound in chains. It took a body and came upon God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw, but crumbled before what it had not seen. O oh, death, where is your sting? O 
O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the tomb. For Christ, being raised from the dead, has become the first fruits of them that have slept. To him be the glory and might unto the ages of ages. Amen. What can a normal Christian take from the life of John Chrysostom? From a Reformed Protestant perspective, I'm not a huge fan of some of the, the moralizing, definitely not the self-flagellation, some of the ascetic aspects of his legacy. Yet, there's something to admire about a man who stood up to an emperor and empress who did not care what people thought about him, but preached the, the clear, simple truths from the Word of God. Not only this, but his passion and his teaching that is clear and directed at people for practical life change is something that we can really look at and admire. His influence on the rich and the poor and the influence that he wielded in spite of not being very good at the political game, I think is a legacy that will be remembered um, has been remembered for thousands of years and will continue to be remembered. I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of History for Normal People. hope that you're benefiting from this study of the early church. I uh, would ask if you would check out some of our resources at uh, normalhistory.com and uh, read along with us as we read some excerpts. If you enjoyed what we heard from John Chrysostom, their readings from all of the people that we've talked about during the course of this season. And I think that we could benefit greatly from reading some of those firsthand accounts, much more than listening to what I have to say. Uh, there's also some discussions I'd love for you to, to hop in and, and share your opinion on. If nothing else, if you would like to show your gratitude for this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That helps us to be discovered by other people so that other people can listen. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to uh, talking again next time.